0: And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten, because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, Melsa, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and minpost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features R.T. Ryback at Dakota County's Galaxy Library. Minneapolis native R.T. Ryback served as mayor of Minnesota's largest city from 2002 to 2014 before stepping down from the post at the end of his third term. His post-mayoral career is proving to be an eventful one. Ryback currently serves as CEO of the Minneapolis Foundation, one of the region's most prominent philanthropies, and is active at the helm of Generation Next, a public-private coalition aiming to improve academic outcomes for underserved children. Between commitments, he has found time to pen a well-received memoir that is equal parts political coming-of-age story and behind-the-scenes look at the running of a major American city. With refreshing candor, Pothole Confidential, My Life as Mayor of Minneapolis, chronicles Rybeck's experience and thoughts on defining events over the past decade, including the I-35 bridge collapse and the fight over marriage equality.
1: Thank you. Thanks, that was great. It's really a pleasure to be here tonight, and I want to talk to you a bit about my book. I want to... Um, also tell you just a little bit, the good news is I, I have actually found gainful employment after being mayor of Minneapolis. People will say to me, um, gee, what's it like to be retired? Well, I'm not retired in the least, but and my kids know that the second somebody says that to me, they just love it, because they can just see the blood going to my head. I am not retired. I'm running the Minneapolis Foundation, and in fact, we just had a really exciting event uh, yesterday. We've been meeting with some of our partners in the Somali community who've been a little worried in the past couple of weeks, especially with a whole lot of messages, they were worried about, especially their kids. Wanted to, you know, were a little concerned about going to school, and so we created an event um, where we wanted the well, the community actually wanted to thank uh, others for standing with them at this tough time. So we had sambusa Sunday. It was these wonderful sambusas that our Somali partners uh, eat, and uh, we had 500 and to 600 people come to Loring Park, so it's a wonderful thing that I get to do. So I'm paid to do nice things for Minneapolis, which to me, don't tell them I would do if I wasn't paid anyway, so it's great to be here. Um, I am a washed up mayor and I'm a washed up journalist, and I had to really make a decision when I was writing this book, which one of these would I be? Because I think some of you, has anybody ever read a political biography before? Okay, I'm really sorry you had to go through that. I mean, I, in, in fact, when I started writing, my, my publisher said, do not read another political biography before you finish this, because he said my book didn't sound like one, and I said, thank you. Uh, the fact of the matter is, I wanted to be as clear and uh, honest as I possibly could be. So instead of being a washed up mayor writing a book, I was a, a washed up journalist pretending I was embedded at City Hall. And that was really an important thing for me in writing the book because a lot of times you really have to stand back from your own expediency and just tell the story. And I think there were a number of cases in there where I told things that I probably wouldn't have told if I was writing it as a politician. I got into a lot of things about my family. And I think it's so important for people to hear about implications of people in public with their families. I think it's especially important for men to talk about how they balance career and, uh, and family. Uh, I talked a lot about mistakes, uh, an awful lot that I admit in there, and believe me, I made an awful lot of them. Um, I think the toughest thing for me to talk about was, um, while the job of mayor was a complete and total joy to me, um, I made a pact with myself to always be present. I went out to murder scenes, and. Bridge Collapses, and you, know, you saw me on the news doing that a lot. But one of the things that I really had to admit in the book is so much of that after a while has a consequence. And I think it was important to talk about that. It's hard for me, I don't like to admit my vulnerability or that something was tough, but it really took a toll on me. And I think like somebody who, I don't mean to diminish, somebody going to war, they have a far deeper impact than it would on me. but. Uh, or a police officer or a teacher or a social worker where you're immersed in challenging problems, you take it on after a while. And I wanted to lay that out, even though it was very uncomfortable, and it's even uncomfortable to talk about, frankly, but I think it's important as we look at the human beings we select to go do these things, that you just kind of have to recognize sometimes what that really means for them. So what I wanted to do was just take a couple random parts from the book and have us talk a little bit, I'll read a little bit, and then you can ask some questions, and I'll read a little bit more, and you cut me off if I'm reading too much, but we'll get get done in time. So um, I thought maybe I'd go pretty much chronologically, even though the book doesn't go chronologically. And the book really, how many of you have read the book? Okay, good. So um, those of you who haven't, the book really seems to careen from like, a uh, super funny to an ironic situation to a very sad one, and back and forth, all within a matter of minutes sometimes, and that's kind of what the job was about. So I want to start with really the very first chapter, which is a little bit tougher chapter, but I wanted to read it in part because it sets this tone for what it's really like to be a mayor in a, in a day. It, it, um, but let me, if I could, do that. It's called Start in the Middle. Shiloh Temple was common ground. In the complex world of North Minneapolis, where years of high crime and high poverty and high drama spawned so many factions, the thriving church and the former Kodak plant was a safe spot for everyone. I was there in June 2006 to celebrate the life of Brian Cole. A few nights earlier, the 18-year-old high school basketball star with a wide network of friends left a party and was standing under a tree to get out of the rain. Someone in a passing SUV opened fire and killed Brian. The gang member who took the shot apparently was looking for someone else. Now a few hundred of us were inside Shiloh Temple on West Broadway trying to make sense of why a good kid in the wrong place at the wrong time was dead because somebody thought he was somebody else. They were moving eulogies from the podium, which would have had even more impact if there had not been even more drama in the pews. Warring gangs that made Brian their innocent victim had been trading shots and threats since the shooting, and there was real concern that the funeral would be disrupted. That never happened, but something more moving did. As the service wound down, people were invited to pay their last respects to Brian, who was laying in an open casket in the front of the church. I was seated behind the casket, near the altar and watched for more than an hour as one person after another leaned over his body. I forced myself to stay focused on each one of those faces, coming to terms with the death of their friend. Was this finally going to be the death that would keep kids from killing kids? I came to the cold realization that I didn't see anger, I didn't see swagger, I just saw deep, deep pain on the face of one kid after the other. That pain was even harder to witness because those faces were so young. It was absolutely clear from people's expression that they knew how deeply wrong Brian's death was, but I also saw a hopeless recognition that no one knew how to stop the killings from happening again. Even more devastating, I was the mayor and I didn't know how to stop them either. I didn't know how intensely I was concentrating until I left the church. I got in my car, and the horror on those faces, their hopelessness, and mine all came together. All the pain I had seen came crashing in on me. As Mark Kluco, the police officer who was with me, drove away, I began to cry almost uncontrollably and I couldn't stop. What Kluco knew, and I had forgotten, was that this was not my last stop of the day. I stared out the window too full of grief to say anything as he drove across Minneapolis to the Green Institute. He handed me my talking points as I got out of the car, but before I could look at them, a very relieved event organizer uh, appeared, said the speeches were just starting, and she pulled me up on stage. In honor of Energy Independence Day, she said, we will have Mayor Ryback wear this three-cornered hat and sign a declaration of energy independence. So there I stood, fresh from a heart-wrenching funeral, dressed like Paul Revere, trying to ad-lib a few lines about energy independence. There were three more stops before I got home. By this point, I'd been mayor for five years, accustomed to days when I careened from one world to another, from one emotion to another. I didn't know I would be mayor for seven more years, and I didn't know the war against violence that took Brian Cole's death, Brian Cole's life, would continue for years until we finally started to win. I didn't know the I-35W bridge would collapse during rush hour one August afternoon and be rebuilt or that North Minneapolis would be hit by and rebuild from a devastating devastating tornado. I didn't know I would help set off a real estate boom on the east side of downtown, perform historic same-sex marriages, help start a beer brewing boom, find ways to repave miles of streets, and much, much more. It was, however, already clear that the job I'd wanted most of my life was more rewarding than and completely different from what I had expected. And I also knew the job was changing me as much as I was changing the city. So that's just a day in the life. <laughs> I want to kind of start there because, you know, I'm sorry to kind of lay that heavy thing on you, but, but it was very much like that, moving from one day to the other. But um, in the book, I talked a bit about why did I want to be the mayor of Minneapolis? And um, I'll read just a little section, but you know, I was a kid who grew up in southwest Minneapolis. I lived in a middle class neighborhood. I wasn't rich, I wasn't poor. Um, but I had a couple experiences that pulled me across into different worlds, probably on both sides economically and socially of where I was at. And I think it, um, it did something to me on that. Um, my father uh, had a drugstore at Chicago and Franklin, and that was torn down. I'm sorry. At, uh, what was 26th and 4th, when you're coming out of 35W and you go by the Wells Fargo building, the drugstore was there and it was this neighborhood that was really, really interesting because my father was a white pharmacist and the two African American doctors in town, so two African American doctors in town both brought their prescriptions there. And so I was in a white family dependent on African Americans for our economic well-being and that economic independence, interdependence, was part of that section of the city well that was torn down as so they opened this drug store at Chicago and Franklin in what then became very quickly a um, a very violent place my father very quickly after opening it had a stroke was sick for a couple of years and died and my mom ran the store so i wanted to just sort of read a little bit that i think it really helped crystallize when i began thinking about this mayor deal in that context the Phillips neighborhood around the store was rapidly, deteriorating, was rapidly deteriorating in those days. It was especially dangerous given my, given my parents' business was a drugstore with narcotics. The Chef Cafe in East Franklin was surely not a great restaurant to be eating in every night. Uh, but to my mom's enormous credit, I saw it very differently. It was the closest thing I could imagine to the perfect Ozzy and Harriet family scene. We were together, we had structure, we weren't distracted. We were all there together, her upstairs in the store and us in the basement doing our homework. And we absolutely knew that we were loved. It was uh, also during that time, uh, also the only time before I went to college that got anything resembling good grades. I also saw something that had a profound impact on the politics I would later try to practice. Starting each day in a comfortable middle-class neighborhood, We'd spend the day at a private school where I was now on a scholarship, where almost everyone had more money than me, especially after my father got sick. But after leaving Brecht School for the day, my siblings and I would be picked up by the delivery guy from work and brought down to the neighborhood uh, of the drugstore where I got my first views of real poverty. People who came into the store, who ate with us at the Chef Cafe, who houses we saw when we delivered prescriptions had dramatically less than we did. Spending the day with people who had so much more and then the evening with people with so much less, I came away with a strange gift of understanding my privilege. That growing understanding, as well as being raised by a mother who gave my siblings and me a deep sense that we should do something to make lives around us better, is how I began to see politics not as just a game, but primarily as a way to fix the world around me. It's almost certainly how, at the age of 13, I got the very unusual idea that I wanted to be mayor of Minneapolis. Well, so it's, it's fun. Um, so the, you know, you fast forward a little bit, and I uh, I ran for mayor. I'd never run for office before. I, um, to be honest with you, didn't think I was going to win. The idea was to run and lose and come back four years later and win because I wasn't well known. I was running against an incumbent. There were all these other people who had more money. I won, which was really great. But frankly, I wasn't quite prepared for the job. So. I came in and I stumbled through it a little bit, uh, but um, I really had to learn the job, so I made a lot of mistakes. So there's this chapter in here called Rookie Mistakes, which you can read. I cataloged lots and lots and lots of them, but I'll just get to the, the final part of it. Um, more than anything, I, I, I don't know, does anybody remember when I tried to replace the police chief? I, all sorts of things. I mean, it was just, just going kinda nutty. I'll just skip to the bottom part of it, but. Um, so I was going through all this mess and just about the th- uh, when I thought it would never end there was a major controversy at the University of Minnesota and thankfully I got off the news and off the hot seat. Shortly after that I ran into University President Mark Udoff and we agreed we'd stumbled onto a brilliant strategy. The next time any one of us did something stupid that got splayed all over the news, the other one would wait a couple days and then do something even more unusual to get us off the hot seat. <laughs> it was about this time that I walked into the TV studio on the first floor of City Hall for the Mayor's Round Table, the public access cable show Mayor Sales Felton and Fraser had done before I went into office. I put the mic on my lapel and I hopped up on the stool in front of the camera and the live show began. Welcome to the mayor's round table, I said cheerily. Then, trying to set a casual tone, began to ad lib. As you can see, there's no round table in the studio. And then looking around at the only furniture I could find, I blurted out without thinking, maybe we should call it the mayor's stool. (laughs) And that was many things I said in that first year that I wish I had never said again. (laughs) There were a lot of those. I want to read you a a chapter. you know, I mentioned these days some unusual things happened. Do you remember Governor Jesse Ventura? Okay, I don't know, maybe we need to think more about him these days, but... But, um, but uh, Ventura was very different than Donald Trump, by the way, but but he was really quite a character. And uh, this chapter is called Jesse Ventura and Two Drunk Firefighters. Um, the 9-11 tragedy hung over most of my first year in office, and on his first anniversary, there were moving tributes on the Government Center Plaza and at the Lake Harriet Vanshell. There was also one tribute that didn't go quite as planned. To mark the anniversary, New York flew firefighters around the country to Minneapolis and other cities that had sent police and fire teams to help in those early days after the tragedy. New York firefighters had acquired now near rock star status, and we wanted to do things right when we learned that we would be hosting two of them. We planned a major media event at a fire station and a presentation before a Timberwolves game. Governor Jesse Ventura's staff arranged for him to sit with me and the firefighters during the Timberwolves game. We sent two of our most upstanding firefighters to meet him at the airport, and I went to the fire station to get ready. Cameras from all the stations showed up, and the Minneapolis firefighters were really charged up to meet their heroes. There was tremendous excitement as the car pulled up. The car door opened, and in about five seconds, I realized we had a problem I had not anticipated. When New York firefighters were on a flight in uniform in those days, what was the one thing that everybody on board wanted to buy them? A drink. Buy them a drink, right, or one, or two, or from the smell of the firefighters, several. So we managed our way through the press conference. I gave some lofty statement about honoring those in the line of danger, and the firefighters said a quick and sincere, if slightly garbled, thank you. (laughs) My daughter, Grace, who was 11 at the time and always observant, asked why the firefighters were hugging people so much. (laughs) But aside from that, we kind of managed it through, and now, of course, all we had to do was to go to a basketball game. After a quick stop at my house to change, I went to the arena and met the firefighters who had also made a stop. So when New York firefighters are in a bar, in a uniform, in those days, what's the one thing everyone wanted to buy them in unison now? A drink, or two, or three. So then I remembered that we had to make a pregame presentation on the floor. Now fortunately, it's very easy to get to the center of a basketball court. You just follow that straight line that leads right to the middle. I did that, and the firefighters, of course, did not, weaving their way back and forth across the line until they ended up somewhere in the general proximity of where they were supposed to be. I took the microphone, issued another lofty statement about honoring those in the line of duties, and the firefighters once again grabbed the mic and said, thank you. (laughs) We careened our way back to the seats in the lower bowl, and there was Governor Jesse Ventura. He gave them a nice greeting and we all sat down, the governor, me, and the two firefighters to my right. The four of us started making small talk, but it was abundantly clear right away that the firefighters had absolutely no interest in me and only really a passing interest in Ventura. They had fixated on two women to their right who were equally (laughs) drunk, if not more so. (laughs) As the game started, the governor and I were talking, uh, but then he too got distracted. So all those years in pro wrestling apparently taught him something about fan behavior because he launched into a massive taunting of the ref, complete with a series of Effenheimers. Governor Jesse Ventura had a very loud voice. In those days, there were probably no people better known in the country than New York firefighters and Jesse Ventura, so as you can imagine, a lot of people were looking at us. We were right in the center of Target Center's bowl where everyone in the building could see the scene of two drunk firefighters hitting on two drunk women, the governor of the state of Minnesota yelling, Effenheimers, at the ref, and in the middle was the mayor <laughs> of Minneapolis, right? So I thought back to a few, years, few hours earlier when I was walking out of my office. My policy aide, Peter Bergenius, Handed me talking points about the state's local government aid policy that I was supposed to raise with the governor. And I laughed at him and I said, Peter, there is no way in God's green earth Jesse Ventura is going to talk about local government aid at a basketball game. Then, right after launching another F bomb at the rep, Ventura turned to me and he asked, What do you think of the new local government aid policy? <laughs> 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 so that was, <laughs> that was kind of that. So, um, so, I made a bunch of mistakes, I did some things, but the weird thing was, I got re-elected. <laughs> it was really strange, I mean, not by a little, by a lot. And it was a tough race, but I won by a lot. And it was really interesting, because I came in right after 9-11. I had to make huge cuts in a city that already had big debts, but needed others. I had to do all sorts of restructuring. Um, and basically, with, within the first, two years, I'd made virtually everyone in my the coalition that elected me mad. And so it was really, I thought back after this election, how did this happen? How did I get re-elected after all of this? And it really came to me that I had really rethought now the way that I thought about the job. And this chapter, I'll just read a little bit from it, it's called The Thin Line Between Love and Respect. Um, Trying to get distance from my own self as I looked uh, toward the beginning of my second term and what I hoped I could accomplish, I stepped back and saw a former political newbie deepening the relationship he had with the people he represents. The compact was now different from the mandate, uh, was now different. My mandate was not to do everything everyone wanted, but instead to do what I thought was right. It struck me that if people really wanted elected leaders to do every single thing they wanted, we could install robots in office and have them take directions from the latest poll. I knew there was a tremendous danger in overreading this point. I believe I was initially elected and now re-elected because of the significant efforts I was making to connect with people on as many levels as possible—door knocking the whole city, showing up virtually everywhere, trying my best to actively listen and visibly change direction if somebody convinced me. I was wrong. I couldn't lose that edge and I had to make sure staying connected to the people I represented was a hedge against being arbitrary or arrogant. I just knew now that I could solve a problem by opening a door, getting as much input as I could, and then closing a door and making the tough call myself. I was elected because of my ears but also because of my gut. I also had become self-aware enough to know that I didn't get sent back to City Hall for another four years because people loved every single thing about me. I saw that voters made a decision that that while I was seen as flawed, on the whole, they respected what I was doing. The only analogy that seemed to fit was the feeling you get about your fifth or your sixth wedding anniversary when you stop trying to change everything about your partner and instead make that pragmatic calculation that the thing that bugs you, the things that bug you are nowhere nearly as important as the reason you fell in love in the first place. And so the point was really that there's this thin line between love and respect, and I'd come in as, I just wanted everybody to just love everything I was doing. And you can't do that in politics. And if instead you say to people, I need to hear you, I need to understand that, give me your input, and then you go back and you make a tough call. And then you go back out and say to people, you know, I really love what you told me, and here's how I got to that. I came to another conclusion, but a little bit like math class, you know, where you gotta show your work. Um, so anyways, that wound up being, and I think that's a really interesting thing for people who are consuming politics, meaning all of us, to recognize that we shouldn't necessarily ask our political leaders to do every single thing, but we need to respect how they got there every single time. It's kind of an interesting thought for me. Let me read another chapter for you, and then we can, do you want to read about the bridge collapse? I don't know whether, I to. Interesting, okay. You know, the thing about the bridge collapse, I'll just, before I write this thing, was um, it was an absolute, total, and complete shock to me, as I'm sure it was to everyone else, but I knew what to do. And I knew what to do because I'd gotten elected, I won the primary on 9-11, which I cover a little bit on the book, and so I came into office in this new America where suddenly cities had to deal with emergency preparedness, and then I think the second or third month in office, um, the um, f- uh, federal preparedness people flew 70 of us from the city to this place, Mount Weather, Virginia, to do preparedness training. And Mount Weather is like basically the cave where Dick Cheney went. It's in the middle of nowhere in Virginia, <laughs> you're out in the middle of, and you go there and you, and you think, well, nobody's at this place. Well, then there are a lot of cars and you can't quite figure this out. And then you realize that most of them are underground. You know, So it's, it was this very serious place and we went in, for two or three days, I can't remember, two, two and a half days, something like that. And um, we had to train in the position we were in. So I had to train as the mayor. So get this, I had never been a mayor before. I had run a business, but that's really different. And so um, I had to go through these simulated disasters. And it's not like you say, okay, if that happens, I'll do this. You have to stay in character. So they walked through these disasters in the city, a tornado, Uh, a terrorist attack, a pandemic, and in the middle of all of these scenarios, a bridge collapsed. When the bridge collapsed, in simulation, we realized we didn't have this one piece of equipment. So in the years after that, we bought that piece of equipment. That wound up when the real bridge collapsed, being one of the first pieces of equipment deployed. And I say all that because I knew what to do. I knew to go to the emergency preparedness center, I knew where to stand, we knew where to go, and we drilled it and drilled it, and we were ready. Or that tornado but you 're not ready emotionally and so I covered a little bit in the book about the human piece of this. my wife and I well starting off going to the family center and getting to know these families and my wife and I going to all the funerals and what a powerful difficult and uplifting experience it was at the same time. it is never uplifting when these horrible deaths and these injuries took place, but the community really so powerfully came together it was was really great i 'll just um, read this part at the end. Um, uh, One of the people who died was a woman named Sherry Ingebretson, who, of course, I didn't know like any of them, but I got to know her family very well, and Sherry worked at Thriven Financial, and uh, was apparently just an amazing woman, Um, but that's just a subtext for this. Thinking about the bridge collapse today, especially when I go by the memorial we helped build overlooking the site. I have waves of conflicting emotions about a tragedy and recovery that were both horrific and deeply inspirational. I learned what happens when our common ground shakes, and I learned that common bonds are unshakable. Every couple of months, I ran into one of the family members of someone who died or one of the people who survived. One of the most exciting conversations was one with the husband of one of the survivors who I met, um, met in the days after the tragedy. When we met again last fall, he told me uh, his wife was doing much better and they had just had a baby. One encounter, however, sticks in my mind more than most. A a month after um, the collapse, Megan and I took Charlie, our son, to college. We dropped him off in Washington and (laughs) cried like parents do when when their first kid moves away. A few days later, missing Charlie a lot and feeling really sorry for myself, I made remarks on the first day of school at Augsburg College. A young freshman walked up to me and said, do you remember me from the funeral? It was Sherry Ingebrigtsen's daughter, Jessica. As I talked to this wonderful young woman, I remember hearing at the funeral that Sherry had been so busy helping one daughter plan a wedding and the other move to college. I got to say goodbye to my kid as he started college and Sherry didn't. And so many lives changed in so many ways, and I still ask why. So that was um, that was. It still is. I'm sorry, but it's still really tough to internalize. Um, I wanted to read you a quick, quick one on Barack Obama because I was the first mayor in the country to endorse Barack Obama, and I got involved in this. Thank you, and he's been. Thank you. I think he's an amazing man, but I think no matter where your politics are at, he's shown pretty remarkable dignity all the way through. But in any case, so um, I tell the story in here about how I met him, he came in to speak. I was, I had like 15 minutes with him because he was meeting the mayor and all that. And he just sat down and I just said, I think you should run for president, you know, even before I said my name. and. And he said, wow, you've really got intense eyes, or something like that. (laughs) I was apparently like boring a hole under him. So I tried to talk him into it. And it was during the time that I would later read that he and Michelle were pretty much decided against doing it. They thought Hillary Clinton had a big lead and all this sort of thing. So I thought, tough. If he doesn't want to do it, I want him to do it. So I got involved in this draft Obama movement. So there were no elected officials. It was me and a lot of people who'd never been in politics. so, you know, you get on these phone calls, and it'd be, I'm a, a real estate agent from Walla Walla, and I'm from Bangor, and I sell insurance, and this and this, and then kind of randomly, I'm this mayor of Minneapolis. And anyway, so it was really kind of fun to be in this, but one day, um, I um, oh about eight months after, now I'll start reading, after the first Obama meeting, I wrote a post on one of the national draft Obama blogs. And I wrote, oh, Barack Obama is a great man, but this is not about Barack Obama. It's about setting off a grassroots effort to change our politics. The next day, my assistant, Jenna Hottinger, came into my office looking stunned. Barack Obama's on the phone. <laughs> I picked up. Hello, Ortiz, it's Barack <laughs> Obama. <laughs> he said, yeah, I only know want Barack. <laughs> I, said, I, read, I, I read about what you wrote yesterday, he said, and I think we see this the same way. I don't need an ego trip, but I see this is not about me. I happen to be in a position to set off a movement." He said he'd been traveling the country with his new book, The Audacity of Hope, and getting an overwhelming response. "'Do you mean you're actually going to do this?' I said, genuinely surprised. "'Yes, I'm thinking about it, and if I do, I'd like you to help.'" And that's how I became the first mayor in the country to endorse Barack Obama. (laughs) The Obama campaign took up almost every minute of free time I had when I wasn't being mayor. And I explained it to people like this, most people have a hobby, some golf, some paint, I try to elect a president. <laughs> so I campaigned all over the state and, and for the weeks before the Iowa caucus took busloads each weekend to door knock all over that state. Among the hundreds of amazing moments, a few really stand out. I remember standing in the Des Moines Convention Center just after we learned Obama won the caucus. And the announcer said, and now... The, first, the next first family of the United States of America. When the Obamas walked on stage, you could actually feel the entire crowd take a breath as we got our first look at the remarkable family that didn't look anything like almost anyone who had voted in the caucus. And I turned to my family and I could only say, this is exactly what politics is supposed to be about. I remember how shortly shortly before the Minnesota caucuses, I got to spend a day campaigning with Michelle Obama, and she was superb. As she left, I gave her a hug, and I wanted to say something like, next time I see you, you'll be in the White House. Instead, what inexplicably came out of my mouth was, I'll see you in the Lincoln bedroom. (laughs) Which was inappropriate on about three or four different levels. Almost immediately, she was whisked away, and I still wonder what she told Barack about the visit <laughs> to the mayor of Minneapolis that day. There is actually a picture in the book of me a little while later when I happened to be, you know, I was at one of these photos shoots with Obama, and I happened to be telling him that story, if I can find this real quickly. So here he is, you can see he's laughing, but his arms are folded like, Who is this guy? (laughs) Anyways, so. Well, let me read one more. By the way, I want to just tell you one really cool story. Um, You know, one of the great things about a book is you get to tell your own story, and one of the things I really wanted to tell was about um, a teacher of mine. You know, everybody says that I was a bad student. I don't know anybody who says I was a brilliant student, but I actually was a very bad student. I, I don't know really, um, you know, I think I you know, have lots and lots of energy. You know? I don't know whether I was ADD or something like that, but I have lots and lots of energy, and it took me a while to figure out how to really manage that. You know? So in a classroom, I was very disruptive, I was disrespectful, um, I was distracted, and when I began doing this work in education equity, a really tough realization came to me. Distracted, disrespectful, disconnected, all of that. If there was one thing different about me, if my skin was black, I would not be where I am today. I would have been on a very different, I would have perceived, other people would have perceived me differently, I would have been perceived differently. I got a second, third, fourth, 80th, 100th chance and all of that. But there was this, there were many people who believed in me and that's part of the thing. But one teacher, I had never gotten an A on any paper in the world and uh, we had this, this, uh, teacher who had been uh, anti-war protester and a hippie and all and I was a big Nixonite. You know, I was raised a really conservative kid. So I wrote this paper for this sixth-grade class civics thing on why Nixon was such a great president. You know, to this. <laughs> you know. And so I just because I didn't care. I wasn't going to get a good grade on it. I go up and I pick the paper up off the desk and I look down. And it, well, he made a mistake on it, so I looked at it and I. Handed it back to him because he made a mistake because, of course, there was an A here and I had never gotten an A, and he looked at me and said, no, that's your grade. And then he looked at me and he said, you have something to say, keep saying it. And to this day, I remember the look in his eye, I remember how that felt, and I just think we have to remember, in each of our lives, make that connection and that difference to let a kid believe in you. So I wrote this in the book and I was really excited about it. And um, so when it was time for the book to come out, I, um, uh, I, I didn't know where we, this teacher was, Stephen Kingsbury. So, Facebook, right? So I go to Facebook and I said, does anybody know how to find Stephen Kingsbury or to how to prep school, blah, 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 blah. And it was so great in Facebook, you know, people came back with stuff, but the person posted something and said, they just found something from my high school alumni magazine and Stephen Kingsbury had died. And you know, some things hit you in different ways. This hit me like an anvil was dropped in my head, and I just said to my wife, "I just have to go take a walk." And I don't normally get that, but I was just crestfallen because all these years, and I was writing the, I was so excited to show it to him, and he died. I just felt horrible. So I took a walk, and I came back, and I happened to look back on Facebook, and so somebody found another thing for my the next month's Alumni Association saying, we made a mistake. <laughs> Stephen Kingsbury is a lie. <laughs> so, Facebook being what it is, of course, everybody's involved. They're calling the guy, all this kind of thing. Anyway, so I finally got connected to Stephen Kingsbury, and I got to read the section of the book about him to him in front of this whole crowd. And it was one of the most magic moments and all. It was just great. Well, let me just, he's mentioned in this, this thing, but I'll just read you the final thing. It's just a chapter called Why I Wrote This Book. And um, so on a, <clears throat> on a hot summer afternoon during my last year as mayor, I dove into Lake Hubert in Nisswa, Minnesota for a long swim. Exercise had always been my refuge, especially when I was under pressure. I really needed exercise when I was mayor. As I swam out into the lake, I expected my brain would start wandering over all the things I was trying to get done in those last months in office. Instead, I started thinking about being a kid again, throwing a tennis ball against our house and pretending I was a star for the Minnesota Twins. 40 minutes later, as I swam back to shore, I pretty much composed in my head what would become the second chapter of Pothole Confidential. As I got out of the water, I had this rush of memories about the highly unlikely reality of growing up to do that one big thing you dreamed of as a kid. Over the next few months, early in the morning or sitting on a plane, I started to write down these stories, and eventually, I saw I was writing a book. Someone once said, poets should become astronauts, because the only descriptions we have of outer space are from people who were trained to fly airplanes. I kept that in mind when I wrote this, because most books about politics are from politicians. I am no poet, but I was a journalist, and I tried to write this thinking I wasn't a former mayor writing a book, I was a journalist embedded at City Hall. I wanted to tell stories the way I heard them, sitting for hours around my mom's table growing up, and I tried to remember the lessons I learned from Jeremy Hanson Willis, my longtime aide, who more than any other person, helped me find my voice when I was mayor. Skip a little here. Um, I wanted to write this book so my family understood that all those things we lived through really mattered. I wanted all the idealistic young people I've met to understand House of Cards and all those cynical shows about politics, pardon me, are bullshit. There is such a thing as public service, it is a noble life's work and you will come to know amazing people committed to higher callings other than themselves. True, the field has a few charlatans, egomaniacs, psychopaths, and sleaze buckets, but you will find them in every profession. I wanted adults to understand that they can be the gift in someone's life. Like my teacher, Stephen Kingsbury, was when he found a kid who would given up on himself and reminded him he had something to say, and that made all the difference in the world. I wanted men to understand what I learned from role models like John Pellegrin, who showed me you can put everything you possibly can into your work and still put even more into your family. And I wanted politicians to understand this. Someday you'll be at a ribbon cutting or gala testimonial dinner and wearing a sash, you'll strand grandly to the microphone and clear your throat and loftily proclaim, I could have never done this without all of you. You don't really believe that, but it was in your talking points and now that it's coming out of your mouth, it actually sounds pretty darn good. And then in the audience, somebody who read Pothole Confidential yells out, you're right, you never could have done it without all of us, so. (laughs) And that's true. The book is very much about how uh, people make the city and uh, the mayor gets to do what people want, not the other way around.
0: With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for R.T. Ryback and his work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage, and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering how old Rybeck was when he first took office.
1: I, uh, well, I'm adding, you can start with the idea that I had no gray hair, Okay. Um, Let me think here. So I'm 61 now. Would have been, you know, 50, something like that. Yeah. I um you know I think one of the things is um I got a lot more comfortable with myself on that. Um I think one of the things that was really hard and it is this love and respect thing, but um after a while I just got to the point that um, I'd been through a lot, you know, bridge collapses and tornadoes and all these things that the public I think I just got a different compact with the public. It was just like give it a try, RT, I'm not going to love everything about it, but one of the things that's really powerful is when you're in the job, it's really easy to get isolated, and so you saw me out all the time, but being out all the time means you're exposed all the time, but it also means you're learning all the time. So once I figured out, okay, I am trying to run this city, and if I do this all myself, I am completely unable to do this. And if I recognize there are 400,000 really smart people there, and if when people came at me with a challenge, I didn't get defensive, which is super hard, and I didn't always manage that. But you know, you, even when somebody was like screaming in your face, trying to figure out, "Don't shoot the messenger," my favorite p- picture in City hall was these protesters at City hall. came down. there was this big microphone. They had a big microphone there they're screaming, why isn't City Hall listening, why isn't City Hall listening? I'm standing right there, it's like, here I am.
0: <laughs> this question is how being mayor affected Rybeck's family life.
1: Oh, what a good question, yeah. So I, I wrote about that a fair amount. It's not in one place, it's all throughout the book. It's, um, when, you know, you heard just real briefly, my father had died when I was a kid. And um, so I was absolutely determined that I would be a super present father, okay? And um, so my wife and I had made a lot of sacrifices on a whole lot of, and not that terrible? I mean, but we really, really were proud of what we had done. And so then, and I had in fact decided not to run for mayor once we had kids because I thought I couldn't do it. So when I finally came to the conclusion and she finally came to the conclusion the single biggest thing I was worried about was messing up our family. And I remember about a month after announcing, I was laying in bed, and I just didn't sleep all night because I thought I'd done one thing perfectly well, and it was to raise a family. And I'm now about to blow it. And the beautiful thing is at the end of all of it, our family was closer. I think our kids were better because of it. They, they sacrificed some things. They were exposed a lot. but. Um, I think a couple things, and it's not just about being mayor, but one of the things that wound up being really powerful for us is that we said that I would be present and out there, but I would come home for dinner. And so I was there, I woke up early, they woke up early, I was there for dinner, and then I was almost always there for bedtime. Now, it would mean I would almost always after dinner go out to an event and come back and that, but we were, was really present. And um, our daughter's teaching down in Mexico for a couple years. And, we're all gonna meet down there at Thanksgiving. And the beautiful thing is that, um, you know, you love your kids. That's not the hard one. Do you really like them too, you know, sometimes? And yeah, it's, just, it's, it's been really um, an uplifting experience and one that I think for them also exposed them to a lot. I think it can be done. I so deeply admire the Obamas for the way they've been able to expose their kids to enough but not too much and not put them in front when they didn't have to, but also show them the responsibility of their position and all of that, and I, I really think it can be done, you know.
0: Another audience member asks about some of Rybeck's frustrations while serving as mayor, and if they ever made him want to leave politics.
1: Yeah, I, um, on many levels, I could have been mayor for the rest of my life. I mean, I love, love, love being mayor. So it wasn't, I didn't leave out of frustration. Um, I do think I needed an emotional break for a few years, but I never said I wanted to stay out of politics. Well, I happen to be the vice chair of the Democratic National Committee. Heck of a week, folks. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but um, you know, so I'm, I'm active in politics. and um, But I really think I came to the conclusion that I want to do public work. And I want to be a public servant. That doesn't mean you always have to be an elected official. So aside from you know a couple of reasons one of the things i wanted to do is i could never as mayor really get at the deep endemic issues behind poverty especially and especially education equity and so i had this chance to spend a couple years deeply immersed i ran this thing called generation next which is a coalition of foundations and superintendents and mayors close the academic achievement gap so it allowed me to do what i didn't have the luxury of doing as mayor which is to dive really deep into one issue because you know, you're working on something and a bridge collapses or a tornado. You know, a kid gets shot, something horrible or something great happens. So it allowed me the privilege of focusing on one big issue. And I'm still on the executive committee of that. And now the foundation is really interesting because it's the one of the largest in the country and the second oldest in the country. And so we have 1200 different people who put 60 to $80 million a year into the community so I can use that as leverage for other things and get things done. So I'm still doing public work.
0: This question asker wonders what Rt Ryback sees as areas in the community that are in need of help.
1: There are so many things to do, and I, I, I really believe this has not been a great community because of its politicians. There's been some really good politicians, and a few bad ones. Mostly really good, solid politicians. But there's no community that has a civic infrastructure like this. We're the number one volunteer city in America. And when I say city, I mean the region. I, Minneapolis-St. Paul is one big place to me. I don't draw borders at all. Um, so we're the number one volunteer community. We're probably the most philanthropic per capita. We really do big things. And people just give of themselves, so I think finding it. But I don't think we lack compassion. I think we lack alignment. So for instance, one of the things I was working on at Generation Next was on literacy. So, let me, so raise your hands if you've ever read to a kid in a school. So keep your hands up. Thank you, you're a wonderful audience. Keep them up, we will keep them up. Keep them up if you had any training whatsoever before you went in with that kid in the book, okay? Keep, okay, good, so a couple of hands. Do you feel the training you had represented the very best knowledge that all the best literacy organizations have and you were given tools to make sure you could answer the questions appropriately? Okay, all right. The reason I did that was to first off, thank you for doing that. The second thing is we know a lot about literacy, and we know a lot about how to train volunteers, but we are not training them like we need to. So we launch this thing at Generation Next called Gen Next Reads, and if anybody wants to do that, call Generation Next, and they will um, put you in connection with an organization that has proven practices to train volunteers to get an outcome. That's the kind of rigor I think we need to bring to a lot of these, I think we need to do really aggressive, disruptive things, but in anything we need to really demand not just compassion but results. So that's, that's uh, one piece of it.
0: This question is what was Rybeck's favorite thing about being mayor?
1: Favorite thing I got to do, no question, the Step Up Summer Job Program. So 2003 um, was a really bad economic year. We didn't know there'd be worse to come, but um, we were hearing it's going to be the worst summer for youth employment. So I just said, just got a bunch of people together said, let's find some jobs. So we got some jobs for the summer. But one of the people I got involved was Richard Davis, who's the CEO of U.S. Bank. And when we sat down afterwards, we thought, wow, that went pretty well. Let's do this right. And he was really good. I said, good, let's go do 4,000 jobs next summer. He said, slow down. Every job should be high quality and right and get it right. And so he and I became partners for many years in the Step Up Summer Job Program up to to this past summer has now employed 24,000 young people. 86% kids of color, 30% kids from immigrant families. So I'm really proud of that. And we made one big mistake. We never did an alumni association. So we have 24,000 And all these companies are trying to hire kids of color and all this. So what were we thinking, right? So, when I got to the Minneapolis Foundation, I partnered with a couple groups, the Atasca Group and Greater MSP, and said, this isn't the only high-performing youth organization that didn't have an alumni association, so what we're doing is we're creating something called Connext. It's an alumni association for all the high-performing youth organizations, especially focused on kids of color. They're gonna, as soon as you go into the program, you go into this database, Uh, that then all these companies can access as they're trying to hire people, and we'll have a social component like the Harvard or Princeton Alumni Association, and we're gonna keep those young people here. We're gonna build a diverse farm team, and this community will be a better global competitor than any other one in the country because we're we're getting every diverse kid from every background and language skill and getting them into the workforce. That's the best thing I ever got to do. (laughs) Far and away.
0: An audience member wonders what Ryback feels are the biggest challenges facing the Twin Cities.
1: I will absolutely start with education. And um, that is not to say all schools are broken. Absolutely not. There are very high-performing schools. It is erratic. And it is erratic um, in some cases arbitrarily, but it is erratic because of the way we fund schools. That if there happens to be a shopping center in this city and there happens to not be in the next city, that the kid in this city will get a better education, and that seems to me to be deeply wrong. How we fix that is really tough. Um, I do think also that we're, the way we, there are some really good innovative things happening in education, but innovating on a wide scale in education is really hard. And the odd thing is, the more I look at education, the more I really see that we are, um, the classroom of the future is a little bit like the classroom of the past. So think about a one-room schoolhouse, okay? I'm sure there were lots of talents, but there was an adult leading a learning community in that room of people at different levels, kids at different levels. And they sometimes helped each other and all that, but it was a learning community steered by an adult. Um, and that really, these individualized learning plans and all, is part of what's really happening. But the thing in education that's also super exciting is to really harvest the assets of kids. So for instance, when you really drill down into the outcomes that we have on reading and math and other things, the, there's a huge racial achievement gap. And that can't just be about the kids. It's not the kids' achievement, it's the opportunity gap and rethinking education to really bring much more cultural fluency into it. Um, I'll tell you a really interesting story that I was with these really high-level researchers and they were doing, talking about math and they were way over my head, but they were doing good. And about the second hour, one of them said this really clear thing. He said, my daughter was teaching math in LA and she was having a really difficult time getting kids to understand the notion of uh, negative numbers. So think about it. You know, Here's zero, here's two, here's zero again. Negative numbers? Like, how do I explain that, right? It's a really complicated concept. And these kids were not getting it at all in Los Angeles. So a couple years later, she came to Minnesota. She was teaching here. She started teaching negative numbers. And these Minnesota kids got negative numbers right away. Why would a kid in Minnesota understand negative numbers? (laughs) January, right? Okay? All right. So think about this for a second. So that's kind of a funny story. But what it really is, is it's a unique population in a unique place who can teach all of us something because of their experience. The Minnesota kids can go to LA and teach negative numbers every day of the week, or bring the LA kids to Minnesota in January and (laughs) stick them outside and they'll get negative numbers. Unique population in a unique place gives us something that we all need. Now if we look at the dramatically increasing diversification of our communities, and now when you look at the social and emotional learning that we have, which is beyond just the metrics and math and reading, and you look at the fact that in measures like commitment to learning, white kids are about in the middle, and ahead of them in commitment to learning are African American, Hmong, Asian, and Somali kids, and when do you hear white parents say, I need my kid in a classroom with kids committed to learning, find more African Americans, Hmong, Asian, and Somali kids, right? But that's what the data shows, okay? Different communities bring different assets. The language fluency, the global fluency, the fact that when I went to China, I was a little weirded out. You know, I couldn't quite figure it out, and I eventually put it together that I'd really not been in that many settings where I wasn't part of the majority culture. Well, the African American kid from North Minneapolis who takes a bus to school in Southwest and goes downtown for a summer job, crosses cultural barriers every day. And that's fluency that I and my kid gets being in the same classroom. I just say this is that there are some really exciting ways to rethink this that are not only about the school, but about how we're trying to build a community that competes in a world where global fluency matters, where our ability, one of the most important things a kid needs right now is to cross a cultural barrier. Sorry, but yeah, I'd start with education. I'd move into the climate, yeah, more, yeah.
0: The last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering what Rybeck's thoughts are on the recent presidential election.
1: We are the two most unpopular candidates who have ever run for office. Um, I think we have to listen to that. Uh, I think we have to rethink that. I don't think that's the responsibility of some abstract person out there. They aren't giving us enough candidates. Who are they? We are they, okay? So we actually have dramatically more power to choose who those final candidates are than we exercise. I think we need to change some systems. I'm a Democrat. I think the caucus system is absurd that we would have people do that. I think we should go directly to a vote. I think we should put dramatic restrictions on campaign financing and whoever you like for president, they should not appoint a person to the Supreme Court who will continue the Citizens United, which I think is anti-American and anti-democratic and anti-free choice. I think we should look at redistricting, which right now is done by political entities and it should be done judicially and by, by, and not by doing that. I think we should throw out the electoral college. I think we should have multi-day you know, voting. Just, and that's not just because, you know, a candidate who I wanted won the popular vote and lost the election. It could have gone the other way. I still feel that. There's all this stuff that we can do. But we are not passive observers and we act like it. So people don't get engaged in the process until we're already narrowed down to outcomes that most of us don't like. So um, you know, I um, I have huge concerns about the language and some of the values that the president-elect has used and that is concerning to me um i think we need to be very open and supportive of the transition of power and i think we need to make sure we are not lemmings and allow things to happen and i don't um that means i think we have to be very vocal if we oppose i want to think that through because I just saw a president who the country elected overwhelmingly twice and a group of people chose to hold together as a political party and say their number one job was to not cooperate. That was deeply wrong and I need to figure out how to navigate that too. So I don't know where to go with it, but that's a start. Thank you.
0: This Dakota County Galaxy Library event with R.T. Rybeck will wrap up our summer-fall 2016 club book season. Make sure to check back with us in late January as we announce our winter-spring 2017 season lineup with more great authors. Podcasts of our previous discussions can be found on our website and iTunes, so if you have a minute, check them out. Over the past six seasons, we've had some incredible writers speak about their work, their process, and their journey. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle ClubbookMN. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just made two. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.